0: Michael Sonbert and Antonio Vance have held nearly every job in K-12 education. They've coached, trained, and partnered with thousands of teachers and school leaders from over 100 cities and eight countries around the world. They are Skyrocket Educator Training, and these are their Informal Observations.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to Informal Observations with Skyrocket Education. I'm Michael Sonbert, the founder of Skyrocket, here as always... With oh, our okay. chief schools officer the good doctor dr antonio vance vance as the kids say it's been a minute man how are you i'm great how are you i am my great i am have... raspy my voice sounds raspy yeah uh it could be because i uh got the big c after 25 months of escaping <laughs> covid It finally found me i am fine mm-hmm. um but uh, I do. It's funny that you bring that up, man. I got to start with this. We have two awesome guests tonight. Um, a woman named Joan Kelly, who's the a founder and CEO of an organization called The Bound Parenting, and our buddy Frank Grossman, who's another founder of uh, a, a team called the Integrated Impact Group. Um, a lot of founders on the show tonight, Vance. Sure. A lot of lot of founders and CEOs. Um, but before we bring those folks, spokes- <laughs> we'll just and little it's old you. little old me. Just the, the brilliant doctor who's coaching people all around the world, the the international citizen that you are. Um, dude, listen, it's the last six weeks of my life. The, so first of all, first thing that happened, my buddy from high school passed away. Now, he wasn't my best friend, but he was like my best friend's best friend, if that makes sense. Yep. And dude was in his 40s, crazy. Um, and... Uh, and it's it's wild to say this for somebody in their 40s but he was like i just thought the guy was impervious he was one of those dudes that every time i saw him just had another incredible thing going on mm. uh and just like mr personality tons of fun and uh and so he passed away super sad um two kids mm. and then right after that that's obviously that's the headline but then right after that i got what you know I got strep throat, which you said you wouldn't wish on what your worst enemy? My worst enemy, yeah. Your worst enemy. I've never had it before, and <laughs> I could not get out of bed. You actually had to you actually had to step in and facilitate for me. Oh, yeah. We had we had an event, and I couldn't do it. Uh, and then everybody in my family, except for me, got the flu. And then not long after that, like two weeks after that, my wife and I got COVID. And here's my point. By the way, if somebody told me exactly what I told them, I would be super judgmental. And I'm going to say, you live an unhealthy lifestyle. And you're bringing this on, you're bringing this on yourself, um, which I don't think that I do. I think I'm actually the opposite. I mean, I indulge on the weekends, but um, but here's what, uh, and I could probably put this in like what I learned, but man, good health is the, is the most underappreciated thing yeah. on earth, right? Good health. I am like, I have this like over the last 6 weeks I'm like wow I I can never get sick again. I hate it. Right? I'm just like, "Oh, I forgot this <laughs> dude, I threw out my back in the middle of that whole thing. I got to oh, a point where I couldn't I couldn't lift my daughter. She was an ounce. I couldn't lift my daughter. <laughs> and I'm like, I I am just I have such a like I should have more appreciation for good health, but I have such an appreciation now after these last 6 weeks and I know there are people whose problems are a thousand times worse, but man, I'm like, holy cow. I need, to, I need to just focus on health and sleep and eating well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think? Do people appreciate their good health or no? Uh,
2: probably not as much until something happens. Um, I think that's right. The, but I mean, I think you're pretty, I mean, you're pretty maniacal about, you know, your health and, and doing things um, and getting your body ready for extremes. So, I mean, I mean, you're a pretty healthy guy. You know, things happen. You survived. I survived. Well,
1: yeah, well, I survived. I'm um, I'm feeling great, but here's the thing. I think what happened is the mask came, the masks came off after two years, and my body was like, "What? What the heck are you doing?" <laughs> I mean, that doesn't explain the back. Yeah, um, I can't explain the back. I had to carry like 150 pounds of wine like four blocks, and uh, <laughs> that's a story for another, that's another day. Story. <laughs> Let's get into advance. We're gonna start with three questions for the good doctor, like we always do. The first one. Yes, Devance. Do you have like, what's your biggest pet peeve? You're allowed to choose one. Your biggest oh my God. pet peeve. I know you probably have <laughs> more than one. What is your biggest pet peeve?
2: Oh my gosh, Michael, I have so many pet peeves. Do you know what my, you know, what it is a, it's a subtle pet peeve, but it nonetheless like irks me. Yeah. I am pet peeved when I hear people chewing their food like like on the phone or in person in person like when you go and you're like with like talking to someone and they're like eating or something and you can hear them like actually like manipulating the food in their mouth like I like want to rip people's heads off like I I'm just unable to actually um to deal with it I mean it seems kind of unreasonable but I don't think it is um, I should not hear digestion beginning in your in your mouth.
1: What is the te- what is the technical term for chewing? Is it mastication? Is that yes. am I right about that? You are that correct. Seems like yes. that seems like the wrong term for that. Like that seems like it's <laughs> super like pornographic and weird. It's just like chewing, but it's called mastication, right? Like. It's <laughs> Our viewers can't see Vance covering his face, leaning back. In if I could blush, I would be <laughs> blushing,
2: uh, but I cannot. Um, I, I well, do not like to hear anyone masticating. <laughs> okay. Vance,
1: we are going to dinner tomorrow night. You know this. We're going to dinner tomorrow night in Milwaukee. You're going to be surrounded by 11 people yes. who you might hear somebody chewing. Should I? Uh, should we watch out for uh a death stare, or even maybe a an. I will give a word.
2: side eye,
1: and I will just either
2: just. It's a pet peeve, right? It's, it's not gonna like. I'm not gonna like say anything. I'm just like side right, eye right. And, and I mean, by the way, you do it all the time. I do it really.
1: Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> and you irk the shit. I'm a loud masticator. Yes, you you do. I am. Oh I'm my nice. gosh. Yeah. When like, uh,
2: breathing, like when people like breathe, they're eating and then they breathe through their nose, and it sounds like they're oh my god, it drives me insane. And do I do that too? Yes.
1: <laughs> you, do. you do which is why I'm usually not around you when you're eating. This is maybe this is where some of the bad health is coming from. This uh <laughs> I need to learn how to do this. Here's what I want to do. I want to I want to study you. I'm gonna take a video of you eating and I'm gonna study it. Yeah, and I don't make really sound when I when I eat. You don't at all. I do not, no. I know what you do, you do do though, is you steal my son's soda. When you <laughs> I know what Look, I didn't, <laughs> Look, we're not doing this. My, my son, my son, my oldest, likes orange soda as a treat. Not no. as like an everyday thing, but as a treat. So I bought a 12 pack and put it in the apartment in Philly. And then you show him with your sushi one night and you go right into the closet and rip out an orange soda and crack it. And you start drinking. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, Oh, are these yours? I'm like, yeah. You're like, oh, I. Cr- what'd you say? I crushed those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I, ha- I housed those, man. They're all gone. They're all gone. Yeah, they're gone. Um, my pet peeve, uh, my biggest one is when I call somebody and leave them a detailed message and they call me back and haven't listened to it, but instead say, <laughs> hey, I saw-, I saw you called. What's up? And I'm actually at the point now where I'm like, hey, uh, go check your voicemail and then call me back. I'm not doing it again. I did it once. Why
2: are you? Why do you assume that someone's going to check their voicemail immediately? If I see a missed call, I'm just going to call you back. I'm not going to. No, I, I,
1: I. No, this is like the. What is this? This this lazy world we live in. What do you mean? Why would I assume that they check their voicemail? It's like saying why did Why would I assume somebody put shoes on before they walked out of their house? Because that's what you do. No, if I you call you me and.
2: And I see a missed call. I'm I'm quicker going to just call the missed call back than like shuffle through menus to to look for a, a, a voicemail.
1: It's lazy, man. It's lazy. Let's I, it, make a deal. And by the way, I'm not even accusing you of doing this. Yes, Do you, you say are. You,
2: yes, you are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, this is your guilty conscience because you just accused me of a uh, uh, gross <laughs> mastication.
2: Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. To- do you know how many people call and don't leave voicemails? Like, out of yeah. 100 calls, two people leave a voicemail.
1: Well, for so, you and for everybody listening, if I call you, I'm going to leave a voicemail. You well, need to check about, it. do
2: not leave a voicemail? Just
1: call, and if I don't answer, then... then I disagree, and I'm going to ask Frank and Joan what they think, and I think going they're going to gonna be on my you. side. <laughs> Vance, what's something you've learned since the last time we were together, man? Um, i learned a lot. Uh, but I learned
2: something today, actually. I learned today that um, we always talk about Milwaukee because we love um, it's a wonderful city, that Milwaukee is um, known as the city of steeples. Um, as I was in an Uber today driving through, I just was like, why are there so, I mean, churches are great, but there were just so many beautiful, ornate um, very like large churches. Um, and when I got to the campus, I asked the leader and I was, I was like, you know, I just noticed on the way here that there were a, um, just a lot of churches and they were like, yeah, there's, this is known as the city of steeples. And I guess it has to do with like, um, a large immigrant, early immigrant, immigrant populations from London, Germany, um, Poland, um, and all, all sorts of religious groups, but it's, it was amazing. I just like, there's so many churches and you can never have too many churches. Um, but yeah, it was just really, really interesting.
1: Um, I like how you want to make sure not to offend the people who <laughs> build churches.
3: And churches. <laughs>
1: um, it's funny. I've, I've been to Milwaukee a million times. I'm, I'm actually going there tomorrow and, uh, I've never, I've never heard that. Um, but oh, I will Christ. I will keep an eye on it. It's something I, I don't know. It's like you don't notice it until. Yeah, it's like you know how. Uh, yeah, it's like you buy a new car and then you notice that car. Everywhere. God it. Yeah. yeah. So I've never thought about that before, but I'll, I'll make sure that, to look for it tomorrow. I'm sure I'm going to see churches everywhere. Uh, and as a court in advance, you can never have too many churches, which Amen. is uh, I Amen. like. It. Here, here's mine. I was I'm in a coaching program with a guy named Harris the Third, and you might say, well, what's his first name? Uh, I don't know. Nobody knows. He just calls himself Harris the Third, and he is a former magician who uh, program, uh, and it's it's brilliant. I don't want to like I don't want to uh, undermine the program in any way. He's he's incredible. He's my favorite coach that I have, and his whole program is all about that. Like we all communicate through story. And that everybody has a story, and that story is the most powerful tool for connecting with people. And so I'm in this program, and he has three sessions a week. It's called the Inner Circle, and there are about 25 of us in the program. It's called the Inner Circle, and we meet three times a week um, for for the whole year. So it's 12 sessions a month. Now the thing is, is that, uh, and I should name the programs for for entrepreneurs, and he calls them solopreneurs. So like you have an idea, but you don't have a company yet. And you're you're going to work with him to to flesh your company out and everything from like the who's your ideal client to your designing your website, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with with us is that we do have a we do have a company, and so uh, I'm I'm one of the the handful of people who already has something pretty built out. And with while that's a good thing, what 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 happens is that I miss almost all of the sessions because they're doing noon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Out of twelve a month. I probably attend like one or two. And when he asked me to sign up for this year, I said, "Hey, listen, you know I can't make most of the sessions, but can we like have some other meetings?" And and he was amazing, and he accommodated me, and so I'm getting I'm getting my money's worth, and he's awesome. But here's my point: there's this community of people who meet with each other nine or ten or eleven or twelve times a month, and I pop in like one or two times a month, and I'm, I'm clear that I don't have the same relationships with all of them that they all have with each other and that's fine. Friday was a virtual session, an all day virtual virtual training. It's his once a year training called SoloCon. And I logged in and I see all these unfamiliar names, not just people from the inner circle, but people from who just know him from all over. But then I see a bunch of people from the inner circle and I had this like discomfort because I felt like an outsider. Nobody made me feel like an outsider, but I felt like an outsider. And this woman, Diana, who I don't know in person, but I've you know seen her on a bunch of calls. She wrote in all caps, Michael, with three exclamation points after. it. So I wrote back Diana with exclamation points. And I noticed that she was writing it for everybody who she knew from the inner circle. So it wasn't like it was just for me. But what it did was it totally it calmed me. It made me feel welcome. It made me feel a part of the group. Uh, it made me feel comfortable. And it, it just reminded me, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a grown man, right? Like college educated, master's degree, professional. Like run, I run two businesses. Like like I, and I was still uncomfortable. I don't know who these, I don't know who's here. I don't know if I'll be welcomed. I don't know if people, if I'll be judged. I'm not as close with them as they are with each other. And it just made me think about like, A, I, I don't think that thing goes away. Um, and that's okay. But but B, like, we see this stuff play out in schools a lot where a teacher will say something that sounds like, hey, for this next thing, you can work with a partner or not. And it always like makes me sick to my stomach because I imagine the person, not not some not a grown a grown-up with a fully developed frontal frontal cortex, but like a, a nine-year-old who's like, I don't know if that person likes me, and I don't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody, so I'm not going to ask them to be the, a partner. We see this in schools all the time where there's a class of, you know, 28 kids, and, you know, all of them are partnered up except, like, two students. And it makes me, it may, like, it breaks my heart. And we, like, we'll ask the teacher, oh, like, hey, can you, like, put can you just put that student in a group? And and the, the teacher will say, oh, well, that student likes to work alone. Bullshit. I don't believe that. I don't believe nine-year-olds want to work alone. I think they don't, I think they're afraid of the, 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 what's at stake and, and what it could feel like to be rejected in that way. And it was just, it really got me present to how much like being a part of a group and, and, and social belonging really matters at any age, but particularly for young kids. Um, and it was, it was, ama- it was an amazing, it was amazing the way one word, my name in all caps with three exclamation points, totally shifted my experience.
2: Michael, I, I, I feel like you need a hug.
1: <laughs> no, I needed a hug at the beginning. Now I don't. <laughs> Diana gave me a word hug. Yeah, that was awesome. Neat.
2: Yeah, the power of words, man. One little one, one, one piece can change everything.
1: Vance, we know that educators' education can be stressful. We know that some folks like to relax with a cocktail yes. at the end of a long day. Are you? In fact, having a cocktail tonight. I am not drinking tonight. I am
2: not drinking tonight. Why not? Um, I I have some work I got to get done. (laughs) We're working with a a a pretty intense group of schools, and I need to be on my P's and Q's uh, in the morning, so I'm gonna go to bed early. So, not this show.
1: You don't know. (laughs) I don't want to feign disappointment because I too have a lot of work to do tonight and I'm on an early flight tomorrow and we were going to a dinner tomorrow night where they have incredible bourbon drinks. And so I am saving my, my drinks for tomorrow. But I do know that our guests are having drinks, or at least I believe they are. Um, and I say we bring them out. What do you think, man? Let's rock and roll. We've had some, uh, i had some smart guests in the past. I think these two are going to bring it to the next level. folks. let us introduce you to Joan Kelly. She is the CEO and founder of Abound Parenting, and she's going to tell us what Abound does in a moment. Um, but she's joined by Frank Grossman. He is the founder of Integrated Impact Groups, and uh, it's a consulting group. And Frank's going to tell us what he does in a moment. But before we do that, Joan and Frank, welcome to Informal Observations. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: So, folks, uh, before we start, are you having a drink? Joan, we'll start with you. you having a cocktail tonight? And if so, what is it?
3: I'm having a nice glass of red wine, and I normally don't drink wine on Sundays, Mondays, or Tuesdays. That's my little commitment to myself so that I don't drink too much. Good. Um, but you guys gave me the opportunity to break that little, uh, little plan that I have, which I'm very excited about. Thank you.
1: Joan, just to be clear, your plan to not drink so much is that you can still drink four nights a week. Is that, is that the no, plan? No, no.
3: Yeah, that is true. I'm very moderate, but my doctor said, well, <laughs> you just quit three nights. And I said, okay, I will. And I do most of the time. <laughs> I like,
1: uh, okay, I hear the moderate thing, but I like that plan. I like Vince, So we, we could commit to only drinking four nights a week, right?
2: I'm asserting oh. my Fifth Amendment privilege.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Frank, what are you having, man? Are you having something? Well, I am. I have to confess so I feel a little bit dorky. I, uh, so you guys did send the invitation, you know, to have a drink. Yes. But I, uh, you know, to your earlier conversation about wanting to fit in, I texted Joan. And said, hey, are you, are you having a drink? And she <laughs> said yes. So I went and poured myself one. So I am, I'm having a, a wee two fingers of bourbon tonight.
1: No. Oh, my gosh. What kind of bourbon is it?
0: It is. I am actually not uh, sure. Is that not good? You pour, I you, have a uh, few to choose from. And I'm, okay. I'm not 100% sure which one I poured. It is likely Blit.
1: Got it. Got it. I was going to say, are you one of those people who has like his bourbon in one of those like uh, glass, <laughs> like Do <laughs> You hilarious. ever see like every TV show, every movie of all time? They're always I have like we- three. Do you have those? Did
0: <laughs> you? Yeah. Do? Oh, I aspire to be that person, Vance. I want to yeah. be that person. That's okay. You can.
1: You can. I- I feel like everybody in, in the movies is constantly drinking scotch and bourbon in the middle of the work day. And then <laughs> I don't know how they get any work done. But, um, oh, well, Joan and, and Frank, thanks for being here. Let's start, Joan, with you. Tell us about Abound. Uh, we know you're passionate, you've referred to yourself or you've been like referred to as a, as a woman on a mission, someone who's starting a revolution here when it comes to early literacy. So tell us about Abound and what you all do.
3: So, well, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I am on a mission. I have to mm-hmm. I have to be honest. I'm pretty passionate about it, even if I'm not having a glass of wine. Because I've been around the block in this literacy world and teaching kids how to read. And I think if we don't change the way families and schools partner around children's reading development, then we're not going to make the kind of change that we need to improve children's reading outcomes. So yes, I'm on a mission. My brother says that I'm starting a revolution, but he was the one who coined that phrase because I guess yep. I was proselytizing to him one night about how important this work is to me. But I have, you know, I was a teacher. I'm the mother of three. I was um, my PTC chair of my kids' school, so I was very involved in the kids' schooling. And I spent over a decade working at the Harvard School of Ed um, in a language and literacy research mm-hmm. lab where we worked with schools across the country trying to create rigorous instructional settings for kids. So let me just tell you, I know a little bit about literacy and what Mm -hmm. I know is that we could do better. And so this is my sort of innovative way to do so. I love
1: it, I love it. Awesome, John. Well, thanks for being here and I'm inspired. I don't know about uh, you, Vance, but uh, I'm I'm feeling that, that's coming right through.
2: Oh, yes. I have, I have a story.
3: Of I could have, I could add to your story idea about why I am, am doing this. Should I? Yeah. I do that? yeah, let's
1: hear it. Let's hear it.
3: So um, I've always wondered why kids don't read well. I've always thought, wow, we could do a better job. But one day I was when I was 42, I had already had three kids of my own who had gone past the learning to read age. I had taught fifth and sixth grade. I had tutored reading. And I was sitting in a graduate school class in the basement of Larson Hall. And the prof, who's a genius, put up this slide with the three types of skills children need to read well. And I looked around and I thought to myself, wow, am I the first person here? I'm the only person here who doesn't, who's never seen this before. But I had never really thought about it in this super clear way. And so it has always been lurking at the back of my mind. If I didn't know what skills it takes to read well, and I was like a student of it, even the years I wasn't in school, then there's no way that it's common knowledge. And it's not hard. It's actually- So
1: what are the three three skills? I'm not familiar with this. Tell us what they are.
3: So not to hog the airtime, but- um, Frank's used to mind doing that, so I have to be careful. So there are actually, if you think about it, three buckets of skills children need to, le- to read well. And when we think about learning to read, most of us are thinking about the 26 letters and 44 sounds, the actual foundational skills to decode a word, k- at, cat, C-A-T, that's what we think of. So when our kids come home, and they can read Go Dog Go or Amelia Bedelia. We're like, yippee, yahoo, which is a huge accomplishment. And we should be really excited for that, right? Because learning to read individual words and then put them together and fluently read a sentence and then a paragraph is super, super important. The problem is, it's not the only bucket of skills you need. It's essential, but not sufficient. The other two buckets, one of them is this huge bucket that we're all still building. The f- one, and it's called, we call it vocabulary and knowledge. And it's all of the different skills you need to make sense of those words you just read. And in order to understand those words you just learned, those k- at cat, you need a lot of vocabulary and a lot of knowledge about the world. And you also need to know a lot about language. You need to know how words work. So that bucket of skills that have to do with language and knowledge, that's a big bucket that's separate from the 26 letters and 44 sounds. We call that letters and sounds. So those are the two main literacy-based buckets. But then there's this other bucket of skills that you really need to read well, which has everything to do with what we call awareness and regulation. So it's the skills you need to take in learning opportunities, to listen attentively, to take the perspective of a character, all those types of skills that are more social emotional development are really critical to learning how to read. So both those other, those two buckets that aren't the letters and sounds, 26 letters and 44 sounds, those other two buckets, people aren't really thinking about them when they're thinking right. about teaching kids to read. They think, oh baby, We read Amelia Bedelia. We are done. My kid is off and he's running. Mm -hmm. But that is not going to set him up to read Ethan Frome or to read the high school science textbook. So what I'm trying to get families um, to understand and schools to understand, to be honest, is that learning to read takes a collective effort because those other two buckets of skills have to build over time. They accumulate. It's a drip, drip, drip of skill building. It can happen when you're cleaning the counter and talking to your kids. It's when you're reading and you're talking. That's what we're missing in our culture and in our homes. There's not enough talk about things that aren't pick up your socks, put away your dishes. Not, I don't blame anybody. It's just where we are right now.
1: Well, it's the problem you're committing to solve. And that's very helpful, Joan. Thanks for for sharing that. I'm going to ask, antonio in a second to um hop on because i know antonio you're interested in getting some of the data from folks but before we do that frank uh tell us about how iig is connected to early literacy and what you all do and uh thanks for being here man
0: oh man it's great uh it's great to be here iig and early literacy i can i would start there and say iig and early literacy is about partnering with joan um <laughs> you know i uh, i started as a as a high school football coach and uh and a science teacher and i can talk about that for a second but as a as a as a football coach you uh you learn to see great talent um and i met joan and there was just you know her approach her passion her belief on knowledge and early literacy was something that i wanted to support um and what iig does is you know i like joan have been around for a while like i said started as a as a science teacher and a and a high school football coach um, and a department chair. And so I've been in and around schools my entire career. And what I know is, is how to think about implementation and feel like particularly in the early literacy space, there's a huge implementation problem, right? There are we have like Joan said, we know we, we know what it takes, right? And we haven't done it yet. Um, I ran a nonprofit in the early literacy space for five years. We provided coaches to districts. Um, and it's the same kind of frustration, right? It's, it's there are great curriculum out there. There are great phonics programs out there. Um, there are the right tools out there, but what we're not doing is teaching people how to use them and maximize them and then to fill in the, in the gaps that still exist. Got it. Awesome.
2: So I'm, I'm curious if, to, to hear from the experts here. Um, I, we, we talked earlier and um, it might've been last year last year's, I can't remember, they all sort of blurred together, all the podcasts, um, about just the t- statistics around and the data um, around reading. And I, I'm not sure if you all are familiar with the um, the documentary that came out um, this year, The Truth About Reading. And some of the the, the, the data was, I, I, I actually was dumbfounded by it. I, I actually wrote it down. It sits on my desk that you know, 54% of adults between the age of 16 and 74 lack, you know, proficiency and literacy. And there was a, I mean, in the documentary, there was a, a, an actual teacher who admitted that he could not read. Um, and from, from your experience, I was wondering if you all could share, um, you know, some of the data and what is the, you know, what is the state of, of reading in this country?
3: Well, I'll take this one. I spent a lot of time looking at data. It's about 35% of fourth graders in our country who are proficient readers, according to NAEP scores. That's about one out of three who reads proficiently. Now there's some debate over what the proficiency standard is, but let right. me just say only 9% have the advanced skills in this same you know, test. And those are the kinds of skills that are needed to get and succeed in jobs in the 21st century. Right. Like that's no joke. We need kids not to just be proficient readers. We need advanced readers. And what the one piece of data that I think is is really eye-opening besides those just startling facts about how few kids of our kids in our country read well is that 92 or 93% of caregivers Parents and caregivers, according to a Learning Hero study, think their kids read at or above grade level. So that's what you call magical mm. thinking. I mean, we'd love to believe that, but it just shows you how unaware families are about their own children's status as readers. And mm. and I think that really contributes to the problem.
0: And just to jump on the numbers, like I mean, those numbers are all are right, true, and, and out there, and the you know. The other part is the disproportionate adverse impact on on students of color, right? So so what we know is numbers are even worse for black and brown students. We know the numbers are even worse for black boys. We know that reading by grade level in third grade is a huge predictor of of high school graduation. High school graduation is an incredibly strong predictor of incarceration, right? So like learning to read by third grade is is a civil rights issue, right? It's a civil rights issue of our time. We need to be able to get kids reading to grade level and, and we know what it takes, right? And it's it's not a, it's not a kid problem, it's right. an adult problem, it's an implementation problem. I found it
2: interesting that you mentioned around the the number of parents that or and family and caregivers that um, that think that you know that their child may be reading on 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 grade level. Strong readers we know are developed holistically, um, not just through teachers. What what are the misconceptions that 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 families are having um, about reading, and then what are some ways that we what are, what are some things that we can do to support? and to connect reading at home um, and with, with some things that are happening at school and how can we connect and bridge this gap and fit well, these misconceptions?
3: Yeah, no, that's a really great question because I, you know, I've always said that I almost wish we had more than one term for the word reading because mm. if we have this very simplified understanding of it, that it's c- at cat, C-A-T, and we wanna make sure our child does it, I mean, that's, fabulous. We just can't leave it there. So the misconception is that it's only phonics. What's really interesting is that right now in the public domain, what's really talked about is the science of reading, the science of reading, because what you were seeing from that fabulous documentary and what um, Emily Hanford and a lot of other investigative journalists um, have been writing about is that a lot of these schools didn't have and don't have the systematic phonics instruction in school that's absolutely essential. So for a long time, people thought you could just immerse kids in good books and they would learn to read. And then there was this other belief that if kids read at their own grade level and you just kept going with that, they just kept getting better and better at their own grade level, that then they'd be able to read eventually um, what is in the, let's say the third grade reading Um, test, which Frank talks a lot about. Um, But what we know is if kids are never challenged to read complexity, if they're never given complexity to think about, it's simple in, simple out, right? So we need to immerse our kids, to steep our kids in rich language so that they have it. Rich like opportunities to learn. That's why it's called Abound. There are learning opportunities abound. All we have to do is know that they're there and grab them. We're not talking about flashcards. We're not talking about sweating over whether you're helping your kid learn to read. I talk to so many parents who say, oh my God, every night I have to read with my kids and he's struggling to read and it's really just this terrible ordeal. And then after the 20 minutes over, I say, go watch television or whatever they're giving up the important part, which is the reading and talking about ideas and stories and and taking the perspective of characters. They're giving that up because they're done at the end of this reading aloud with kids. So if parents understood what it took to read well, then they'd know that having conversations that go back and forth about ideas is going to be a better um, learning opportunity for a child than actually doing some of the stuff that's sort of miserable to do at home anyway.
1: Joan, let me, let me uh, jump in here. What is the, um, so, so what's the actual concrete coaching here as somebody, as a parent myself, uh, I've done the flashcard thing um, and you're right. It's oftentimes not fun. Uh, What is the coaching here? Is it that we put that aside and instead we read a book together and I'm asking my kids about the characters and I'm asking them to make predictions and we're talking about what just happened. Is that, is that better? Like what's the, if I'm a, forget education, if I'm a parent listening to this right now and there are, there are, there are quite a few who are, what should they do differently starting the, the day this comes out and they hear it?
3: Well, it's so interesting you say that because that's my problem. Schools take forever to fix. Parents have a sense of urgency, but they don't have the agency they need. Right. And so, what you're asking, Michael, is exactly the question to ask What can I do today that's going to help my child? And let's also remember what can I do today that's realistic, that's doable, and that's fun? Kids don't need to come home from school and then have more, you know, sort of, you know, this, the teachers are trained to do that part. So what you want to do, Michael, is exactly what you just said. You want to read to your child. You want to get excited about the ideas in a book. You want to have back and forth conversations. The language research is so clear. It's back and forth conversations between a child and an adult who cares that makes a difference. Language skills are so important. They're the skills that get kids to be able to navigate through high school and college textbooks. You need to know academic language. The language of text is very different from the language we speak. If I were to read to you instead of talk to you, you'd immediately know it. Why? Because it's different, the language of text. And if kids aren't comfortable with that language, they can't access it. So that's why I started Abound. We give families two questions to ask a day. One is about a word of the week, which is a very important academic word. And the other is about um, a theme. And they're all trying to build skills over time. You don't really need to know that part. You just need to open it and ask those two questions. And what we're hoping to do is to inspire families to ask the kind of back and forth conversations that kids need to learn well, to read well. And the truth is, it's really hard to come up with things to say. So that's why we gave, we interviewed hundreds of parents and that's what they told us. Mm. You know, I think that,
0: that idea about the the simplicity to use of the tool, right. I think about being at the end of the day with my kids and they wanted me to tell them a story or have a, you know, you're exhausted, you're tapped out of, of creativity and, and the, the abound tool is really powerful in that way. I think there's you know, it's structured. It's easy to use. It's that sort of joyful and playful rigor that we all know is important. And I think there's actually places and spaces for within the school day, potentially after school, summertime as well. But I think I, I just see a lot, I have seen and see a lot of small group time that's just wasted and a lot of time with paraprofessionals that with like a, a simple to use great tool, would be able to engage in these conversational turns with kids, which are so important.
1: Yeah, it's actually a good segue. I mean, you both shared that you've had really powerful experiences with coaching, and so my question is, uh, and and shifting from parents back into schools for a second, what are some of the things that coaches of reading teachers are getting right, and what are some of the things that they should be doing differently or better to even improve those reading levels and, uh, students comprehension even more.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Thanks. Um, what are they doing? Right. Right. I mean, look, this is a, this is my sample, right. This is my bird's eye view of what I, of what I see. And, you know, I think, I think what coaches are doing right in general that I see is that there is a real, like we got it now, right. Relationships, coach to teacher relationships matter and people are really good at nurturing and thinking about those relationships, right? So Mm -hmm. I would say, I see that a lot. I mean, we talk about that. I'm sure you guys talk about it a lot at Skyrocket, right? That's like necessary, but not sufficient, right? What do you do with that relationship? How do you leverage that relational accountability to bring apart real change and have those difficult conversations? So that part, the having the really critical conversations. I don't know if we're always there, but I think there is a really good um, focus on, on building relationships and trusting and nurturing and caring ones with between coach and teacher. I think at a, not in a a per se, like one-on-one coaching, but at a, at a district level, I think that, that folks are getting better at selecting materials. I think the, the science of reading has been awesome. It's, you know it's made it it's made it in the consciousness of educators so they are selecting you know research based phonics programs the idea that like you know like the idea that you're supposed to choose a research based phonics program that's systematic like that that's out there, that's beautiful, right? Like that's, that's great and glad it's happening. And as well as there's some really good curriculum out there that develop content knowledge or thoughtful in those ways. And so I think that folks are doing a good job of getting the right resources. Um, but then I sort of turn to what can be better. Um, and I feel like so many times we're overwhelming teachers, right? We're they're, we're just absolutely overwhelming. We don't have a simple model that's, that's helping them get better. I mean, the first and most important thing is, is to help teachers implement the resources they have. I mean, they are, there are good things out there. And let's focus and help the teachers really do it right. What we know about phonics programs, what we know about interventions, right? The, the research is all the same, right? There's a, there's a lot of good ones. There's a lot of fine ones. It's, it's are they implemented with fidelity? They're not implemented with fidelity. They don't work, and we see just a lot of, we see a lot of curriculum programs interventions that are just not implemented um, with fidelity. I think, like the other, really, like for me, a worry. I know Joan and I sound we we have, you know, we've drank in a similar Kool Aid, right? Like I have this worry, like super happy about about, uh, you know, the science of reading and the phonics, and and I'm I'm worried that, that we're going to do it too much, that we're going to forget about the vocabulary and the content knowledge, that we're in this hypersensitive, like, oh my gosh, there's so much, so much learning loss. And, and what kids need is they have to master these 26 letters and 44 sounds. And we're just going to keep hammering and hammering and hammering. And what's not going to happen is those other buckets aren't going to be filled. And those other buckets take a long time. You know, the buckets that Joan talked about to fill, and I don't want to put Vocabulary and content knowledge on the back burner for two years, while we do this drill and kill. And because a, it's not going to be successful. There's only a, a limit to how much, you know, direct phonics instruction you have. Um, and two, it's going to just beat the the any sort of joy out of reading and fun. Um, and and it's for naught, right? It's like it's like the the schools that stop reading, you know, stop everything and do two weeks of test prep before the reading test and that doesn't work right so i worry i worry that we're going to see just an increased focus on on the drill and kill and the phonics it,
1: it brings me to a, you know there's a lot of um there's a, a negative narrative in some places around state tests and that they put undue stress on everybody um uh, i'm not necessarily in that camp but my kids are young young and haven't really I experienced that I will say that the whole my kid reading on grade level what's my what's my child's letter is stressful as hell uh and I don't think I Joan I'd love to hear from you because I don't I don't think that you think it's supposed to be but and I, I maybe, yeah. maybe you tell maybe you, t- you correct me but like it is sh- my wife and I know the letters we know where he's supposed to be we know where he is like it is incredibly stressful and that can't be the way it's supposed to feel right
3: no it shouldn't feel like that i mean it's so hard to parent you know so the problem here is that teachers are killing themselves we cannot under you know state that they are working really hard and parents are working really hard so we don't want to increase anybody's stress level what we want is clarity around this fairly murky problem so the leveling, um, you know, it's, it's done for a reason. It's to get kids, and that's part of my problem. When I started this whole thing, it wasn't to help kit, to help you get a conversation started in your home. I was thinking you could do that on your own, Michael, to be honest with me, yeah,
0: yeah.
3: Um, with you. Um, what I wanted to do was get you to understand what it takes to read well. How old are your kids? Uh,
1: eight, six, and soon to be five.
3: Okay oh my gosh, you're in a parent. So here's what you need to know. You need to know what the benchmarks are that they should be working on right now. So when I left Harvard, I created this check-in so that you could every six months or so for every one of your kids answer 25 questions and, and figure out and educate, it's an educative process, process, what your child should be working on. And through this process of answering the questions, you're going to start to realize. Hmm. So if you have a four-year-old, can he cer- can he recognize his um, name in print? Can he? How many letters does he know between one and five letters? Can yeah. he? Um, depending upon how uh, how far into the four-year year four-year-old year he is, can he sit in a circle and pass a ball around? And suddenly you're thinking, what is sitting in a circle and passing a ball around have to do with reading or? wow, I didn't know he should be able to recognize his name in print. But if you take this check-in, which is really light, it's not comprehensive, it's a very parent-friendly tool, then you're suddenly gonna know what those benchmarks are. Not all of them, there's hundreds of benchmarks, but some key ones that'll get you to understand whether you should worry or not. Let's take down the blood pressure of all these parents who are scrambling to do everything to make sure their child's on point. Now, in terms of the reading level, I actually think that is a teacher's job. The teachers are trained in in how to teach systematic phonics. They have materials to teach systematic phonics. It should be done every day at your child's school for 20 minutes, probably up no more than 30. It shouldn't take over the whole reading block. Your job is to know what the benchmarks are to know what your child to be should be understanding. And then if at the when you go into the conference you share your results of this check in with the teacher beforehand, now you're having a conversation where you have your big boy pants on and you can actually ask questions about your child's reading with some knowledge, with some confidence and with this collaborative effort really clearly defined in your, you know, through this interaction with this teacher. That's what the schools we're working on with who are doing it best are doing. They're really honoring the parent voice, honoring the teacher voice, and making roles clear. These are schools where anyone who walks down the hall will tell you what it takes to read well and what their role is. And then everyone's blood pressure can go down. You don't have to worry, Michael, about which level your child's on. That's the teacher's job. Your job is to read to your child, to expose them to the language of print, to give them a lot of things to noodle over, to talk about words and how they work. You know, our question of the day last week, what's the difference between a dinosaur and a dragon? Now, that's going to lift your chin. That's going to expand your thinking. That's going to get you to be creative. That's what we're talking about. And then the word of the week. This week, it's distinct. You're gonna say, have you ever walked into a kitchen and smelled the distinct smell of something burning? Distinct means, and then you're talking about words and how they work and, and what it means. This last week it was normal and abnormal.
1: You know, we were So you're we saying talking, independent, was, independent of a text, the, the coaching for a parent on how to teach their child or how to support them around reading is to, is to sh- sh- share a word Use it in a sentence and then have a conversation around that word. But the the child doesn't have to see it in print for that to be valuable.
3: Absolutely not. We're talking about little kids. We're talking about four-year-olds who who are all of a sudden using words like uh, a father said to me recently, you know, my four-year-old came downstairs last week and he said, can we identify some objects today? (laughs) <laughs> because we had them working on this word identify for a week. And the words we're cho- choosing are academic vocabulary words. They're, it was a list created by this genius named Avril Coxhead in the year 2000. They're the most common words in college textbooks. But what we also know is that they're also very common in a lot of high school textbooks. And regardless, we've chosen words from that list that kids can access you're not asking them to spell it. You're not asking them to define it. You're just exposing them. And what we're doing through this is we're not only getting the child to hear the word, we're getting the parent to understand that this kind of talk is what's gonna make the difference. Kids kids who are word conscious and word aware are more likely to read better. Kids who are steeped in more sophisticated language in the classroom are more likely to read better. Mm. oral language skills, language um, that children hear really matters. So if you think for a minute about the language your child hears in the house and all of a sudden you realize, oh, it's mostly did you finish your peas? Could you could you, you know, brush your teeth? That's why you read books to elevate language. That's but it's not just reading them. It's talking about them. It's pausing. And it's not just talking to a child, as Meredith Rowe says, who's a genius language researcher, it's talking with a child. That's mm-hmm. what we want you to do. And if Michael, if that's all you did, you should pat yourself on the back and feel good as you go to bed.
1: Uh, great. Yeah. Frank, I mean, yeah.
3: if No, I was going to underscore
0: that. Like, I mean, underscore a, you know, my skills at recognizing talent i just want to make sure that that doesn't go unnoticed um jones like listening to her talk about reading is fantastic um, it's pretty amazing it's it's, it's awesome right it, it's absolutely awesome and so you know if i underscored a, a few things that she said not in the reading specific ones but just you know michael like that you're that you're wondering about like letters and wondering you know so is it it's this idea that everybody's you know the school after-school time, right, parents, that everybody is really clear about what their roles are, Um, and we're all in it together, right, that we're talking about it, that there's dialogue between the principal and the early literacy coach and the teacher and the parents and the interventionist, that everybody's on the same page and they're talking. Think about this, you know, the the beautiful, literacy-rich environment that, that Joan's talking about, what if that's everywhere? Why isn't that everywhere? Why doesn't everybody know that list of words and is talking about it and having conversations, you know, you know, we, we've been in classrooms, you'll be in classrooms tomorrow, you know, Vance, and and you can look at small group instruction and see what it's like and see, gosh, if what we're talking about is just being able to have this really great back and forth conversation on a topic of like dinosaurs or dragons, right? Like I challenge us, we could all get into a, a 10 back, you know, 10 conversational turns with a kid about that. We could, you know, after we're done with the podcast, we'll stay on, we'll have an adult drink and we'll talk about, you know, dragons and dinosaurs because it's a super cool topic and we could, we can talk about it. And that's actually building kids' ability to read, right? And so it's to make sure that everybody's clear about those things and we're creating that environment and all of the domains within a kid's life, right? And that we're bringing all of these incredibly powerful ad, adults in. I think about in the school sense, I, you know, being in and around urban schools, like we know, right? We know the importance of a paraprofessional, right? We know it, right? That's a that's a person with deep ties to the community that's been there and, and often, right? And so let's Let's give them a tool to be able to have these conversations with kids, and let's let's train older kids to come and talk with kids, and you know, in after-school settings or in summer settings. Like, you know, I don't think it's a, I think it's a, a whole lot of ands and not a whole lot of ors of of integrating it all, bringing everybody together, and just having these sort of multiple planned redundancies. So we're just immersing kids in in what we know they need to be able to read and have
3: joyful and playful conversations which are so important. And just to confirm first of all Frank now you know why I hang around with Frank. Um <laughs> so this it is not I just don't want anyone to walk away thinking that phonics isn't important. It is absolutely essential. And it's okay Michael that you know what reading level is at. I just don't want you to feel any burden around that. You say to the teacher Hey, he's at this reading level, you know, this reading level compared to the other kids in his class, is he going to feel good about himself? We don't want him to feel like a reading loser, right? That's a big problem. We don't want to miss something. Let's talk together. This is not a combative interaction. This is a collaborative interaction. And so, yes, what my focus is, um, is all about these back and forth conversations. Doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about the stop sign, S T O P makes the sop the s sound you know as you're going by it those are all teachable moments but to if you're going to be an economist Noni lasso who's a genius prof at harvard used to always say put on your economist hat how much time do you spend with your kids how much time and she was talking about schools mostly but really in the in the house how often how much conversation do you have with your kids don't you want those conversations to be the kinds of conversations that not only build skills, but connect adults mm. and kids. Rebecca Rollins just wrote this great book about the art of talk, talking with kids. And it's true, it's whole body. It's it's creates relationships. It's all the things that have been missing in this Zoom time. And so we just have to remember how important those are to actually reading well too.
2: Mm. Speaking of Zoom time, <laughs> what we're <laughs> gonna transition. Uh, what 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 habits and what, what sort of things did you all pick up and and adopt during um our COVID time off? Anybody pick up any any new habits or talents during that time? Frank, you look like you did.
0: Oh man, well it's so like I don't <laughs> want to share. It's like it's so cliche. I I I I baked bread. Um, but it wasn't sourdough. Like I have like and I'm not just like saying it because of this conversation. So I learned to bake challah. Right. Um, and I learned, and I did it every Friday with my kids. Um, and so it was this like amazing time to bring my girls together and like braid bread. I learned how to braid. I'm, I'm good at braiding now. Um, <laughs> and, and it was this amazing time to, to share with them, to talk with them, to talk about our family and heritage and those things. and, and listen to them. It was a super sweet time. So I think it was bread baking, but I would say it was time. Right. And like having something to do and my kids got super into it. So, you know, if I see y'all on a Friday, uh, I'll bring you a holla.
2: Looking forward. Joan, <laughs> any, uh, any habits you formed?
3: Well, you know? I got, I'm a serious Boston sports fan, right? I mean, that's, uh, I know. And I'm actually, yeah, anyway, there's a game on right now that I'm missing, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) So I have that as my vice. I watch as much and read as much as I can about the sports um, from this fair city. But I also spent a lot of time exercising during COVID. I felt as if it was the one time I could totally unwind and so i would get on a bike in our basement it's not even a peloton it's on a trainer it's very basic but i'd put on some stupid show and i would sweat and it just really really helped me of course i read a lot i did a little knitting but um it was the exercise that really got me through covid
1: uh so last to last to jump in on frank when is the when is the holla tasting going to be cuz you're not you're out in Pennsylvania I know Joan's up in in the Massachusetts area but you're in Pennsylvania when when are we when are we gonna come out to the crib and get some ala?
0: anytime you want <laughs> any Friday just let me know
1: <laughs> all right we won't do that and Joan just when I was starting to think you're my favorite person in the world you have <laughs> to say that you like Boston I
3: know
1: as a New York uh, I don't <laughs> I don't like that at all I'm just kidding i um,
3: sorry I'm also a big Liverpool fan and I'm a huge I'm fan a, of Harry Kane and Tottenham. So, yeah,
1: <laughs> believe it or not. Um, folks, this has been amazing. I'm going to ask one final question. I'm going to ask you to both to, to jump in on it, but I'm going to ask you to be super succinct. Um, and I'm going to ask you to think of just one thing. I, there are probably There are probably a half dozen, but if you could change one thing about how children are taught to read, just one, what would it be? Whoever wants to hop on the mic first, go ahead.
3: I want teachers and parents to work together in a collaborative way. I want it to feel really like a collaborative effort. And in order to do that, we need to make sure families know more about what it takes to read well.
1: And do we have to? I know I said be succinct, but do we have to almost change the entire paradigm, right? Because I, 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 lots of folks listening to this, their their interactions with their teachers are through uh, parent-teacher conferences, uh, and not that the, not that the door is closed but do we have to change the entire paradigm for that to happen? Or is, do you feel like it can happen on a, on a, like a case by case basis and the more you build awareness and the more work that abound does, the more teachers who will say X and the more families who will say Y, or is it like, are we trying to systematically change the way teachers and parents relate to each other?
3: Well, that's the way, why my brother called it a revolution, I'm sure. But um <laughs> I actually think that because of COVID, we've learned so much about parents and how much they want to help. And we've learned so much about teachers and how hard they're working. I think we are primed to right now rearrange, redesign the way parents and and teachers work together around reading development. It's a collective effort, whether we want it to be or not. We may as well just jump in and do it with a smile and and really appreciate each other. Wow.
0: Love it. Frank, one thing you can change. What would it be? No, I'm just going to build on that last one. Sorry, I'll try to be succinct, but it's that like, right? isn't that what the pandemic taught us beyond reading? Like we're all in this together, right? Like everybody's working hard, right? And, and stressed and, and we should be kind to each other. And, and realize that we're all on the same, you know, we're all driving for the same thing, right? We want our kids to learn to read. There are kids, right? And we want them to learn to read. And, and there are a lot of answers out there. There are a lot of right answers. And, and, you know, can we all figure it out, right? Put all the sort of petty silliness behind us and know that it's like, again, stop focusing on the ors and focus on the ands right. And be generative and build together, um, and, and work, right. And like all kids learn to read a little bit differently, right. It's like an individualized process and, an experiment and try and, and keep pushing it forward.
1: Well, uh, this doesn't seem like nearly enough time for this conversation. So I would love if you all are up for it, um, to come back at some point, we'd love to have you back so we could learn more from you. Um, and uh yeah,
3: it's been a ton of fun thank you very much
1: i'll say we've been doing no thank you um we've been doing this show for about a year and a half i think on most shows i learn uh things on a personal note i think i learned uh how to be a better educator uh this is the first show where i've learned how to be a better dad so thank mm-hmm. you i really appreciate that um this has been an awesome experience uh folks joan where can people check you out when they need to find out about abound
3: yeah. It's aboundparenting.com. Pretty easy. In fact, they mm-hmm. could even write to me, Joan at abound parenting. My favorite thing to do is talk to families about kids and reading.
1: Great. So, awesome. Frank, how can they connect with IIG?
0: IIGconsulting.org or, uh, or email me as well. Uh, F at IIG.org.
1: All right. I love it. Um, friends. Thanks so much for being here for Antonio. And the entire Skyrocket team. This was Informal Observations. Until next time, keep on rocking.
0: This was Informal Observations with Skyrocket Educator Training. Sign up for our mailing list at wewillskyrocket.com. Look out for our next episode.